Acts chapter 9. Father, give us focus and clarity of mind. Give us soft hearts and eyes to see the wondrous things that are held in your word. Amen. So today we get to deal with what is one of the most famous stories in all of Acts, and that is the conversion of Saul. And most of us know him as Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, but Here he is referred to as Saul, and I just want to just make a comment really quickly to explain why that is. Um, Paul Paul has two names. He has Saul and Paul. And sometimes it's been explained like, well, before his conversion, he's Saul, and then kind of after, like the the apostle is Paul, but that's not really true. He he actually isn't referred to as Paul until um, into uh, into chapter 13. And so Jesus calls him Saul. His, his name is both Saul and Paul. That's not unusual for that time. Um, most people, a lot of people had dual names. Uh, Saul was his Jewish name. And like many um, Jews during that time, they would have a Jewish name. And especially if they were a Roman citizen, they would also have a Roman name or a Latin name. And so that's, what that, that's all that is. His name, his Jewish name, given name is Saul. Um, and, but his Latin name uh, was Paul. And I think that biblically, the reason why he's referred in one scope and then as Saul and the other one as Paul is simply that when he is interacting with the Jews, um, we see him referred to as Saul. Uh, and then when he is sent to the Gentiles, then he, we see him from that point forward being called Paul. I don't know that for sure, but it just seems like that, that is what's going on there. Um, we see that in other places, Simon Peter. Um, there's a lot of different examples of that where people had two names. And so that is the deal. So if today I interchange them at all, just know that it's totally fine. Right? Don't, I'm not like talking about pre-conversion um, Saul and then post-conversion Paul. He's just, he is Saul. And probably most of the time today I will refer to him as such. But you can be thinking about um, about Paul as well. Um, this is the greatest, uh, this is a perfect Mother's Day sermon, right? Because Saul uh, had a mother. So, <laughs> there's your connection. Hope you enjoyed it. Anybody that says I don't preach Mother's Day sermons, you, there is evidence to the contrary. All right. Um, what we are going to learn, though, from this story and this conversion, what I want to do is I want to look at what we can learn from this in and specifically how, how Jesus saves, how he sends, and how he sanctifies us. How he saves, how he sends, and how he sanctifies us. First, we look at how, how Jesus saves us and what we can learn from the salvation of Paul. Verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. 
Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to, into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. It's a really incredible interaction here. Saul has been persecuting the church says uh, he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Saul was going around and gathering up people who were claiming that Jesus was the Savior, was the Messiah, and dragging them off to be imprisoned or beaten or killed. And he's going so far, he's going to go for, to Damascus. He's going to travel far and wide that he might find all these. He wants to unearth all of them. He wants to get, all, get rid of all of them. This isn't something where he's just kind of going through and saying like, well, when I confront this, when, I, when it comes up to me, I'll confront it and deal with it. No, he is going after people. He wants to find them and to draw them out so that this whole um, view, this way of Jesus would be squelched and ended and then he comes face to face with Jesus. And the key point I want us to get from this conversion here, this story, is this simple point that when it comes to salvation, Jesus chooses you. Paul didn't find Jesus. Paul wasn't looking for Jesus. He was looking for his followers in order to persecute them. Jesus found Paul. And you think about that with, with Paul, if anybody was going to discover the Messiah, if anybody was going to, through reason and thinking and education and, and, and studying the scriptures, if anybody was going to find Jesus in their own merit, it would be Saul. Highly educated, highly thought of, highly respected, zeal, zealous for God and the things of God. With all of his brilliance, all of his education, all of his zeal, he had to be struck blind in order that he might see. The Bible talks about us confessing Jesus, submitting to him, receiving him, coming to him, but not us choosing him. He chose you. And Paul understood this because Paul lived it. It's a reminder that sometimes the more religious we think we are, the more righteous we think we are, the harder it is to see Jesus right in front of our faces. And Paul would later write about these things in Ephesians 1, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Because I know we have a lot of new people here, and, and sometimes we've explained things in the past, but just a quick aside, when the Bible, especially when it talks about our inheritance, when he mentions sons, he, he's not just talking about males. He's just saying that all men and women are sons, meaning like first heirs. So like everything that would be given to the firstborn son in the first century, he's saying that that's for everybody who is in Christ. And so he's saying that before the foundation of the world, God chose you. He 
says in Romans 8, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Jesus chose you. And if you're sitting here right now and and saying, like, I, I wouldn't consider myself a Christian. I'm still seeking. I'm still trying to figure this out. I would say to you that you are being pursued right now. The very evidence of you sitting here this morning is evidence that God is pursuing you. And he makes it very clear in Scripture that he is the one who saves. And it is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing that we are reminded over and over again that it is not our own reason, our own standing, our own, our own morality, our own philosophy of life, our own intelligence, or even our own upbringing that God looks and finds his children and says, you are mine and I will pursue you to the ends of the earth. Why does he do that? Why does he make that so clear? I think it's because so that no one would boast. So that when we come to Jesus, when we do respond in faithful repentance and turn to him, we do not come to him marching with our head high. Like just kind of being led in on some like majestic steed, being like, aha, I found you. We don't do that. We are brought low that he might lift up our heads. See, there's no sales pitch to Saul here. There's no like, hey, look at all the good that you could do if you were on this side of things. Like, look at your education. Look, I see so much potential in you. This isn't a recruitment pitch. This is Jesus Christ glorified. And his light is so bright that it strikes Saul blind. And it's the most loving thing that he could do for him. Because we do not come to Jesus in strength or in wisdom or through reason. We come to him as a blind beggar asking for bread. And this is where Saul is. Blind, hungry, says that he goes three days without eating or drinking anything. He is blind, he is hungry, he is weak, and he finds himself suddenly at the mercy of those whom he persecuted. Can you imagine what's going through his mind? Imagine all of the grief and the questions about everything that he's done and then being at the mercy of God and at those who follow him. Like, what would he be thinking? Are they going to pay me back? Is God just gonna is God just gonna kill me? Like maybe he's thinking in his mind, like, okay, God, I, I see you, Jesus, I see you, I repent. Now just would you mercifully let me die in peace? But that's not what God does with them. What he gets is something completely unexpected. Verse 10. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. 
I don't get confused. There are three Ananias. This is actually one of the ways that we know Scripture is actually God-inspired and given, and it's historical, like the book of Acts is historical, because if you were writing a novel to just try to explain the things of God, you would not reuse the character's name, like a character's name, three times in Acts, two of which are actually really bad examples. So here we have another Ananias. Like if you remember a few um, weeks ago in Acts 5, Ananias is the first guy that's like struck dead um, in the church for, for his sin um, by God. And so we have that. And now we have a different Ananias. And so this is Ananias of Damascus. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas... Another fun recall of a name. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Now, let's, a little side here about Ananias. We can sympathize with him, right? Like, you're brand new. You're actually away from Jerusalem. You are brand new to this faith. And Saul's reputation is so great that Ananias knows who he is. And says, we, we know of this man. Ananias may have known people who had been dragged off and imprisoned and beaten and killed. He's scared. Not only is he scared of Saul, but he's saying, look, even he has authority here. The chief priests have already said that that if I go to him, I could be bound up and arrested. Listen, I I just love this picture of the reality, the transparency of Ananias. He first starts with, here I am, Lord. Have you ever been in that situation? Feel like God is calling you to do something? Here I am, Lord. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Great. Here's what I want you to do. Oh, are you sure about that? I don't know, like, I don't know if you've thought this through, God. But here's kind of the situation. This is what that's going to cost, or this is why that's terrifying. We often get this picture of thinking like, okay, God, here I am. Send me to go do something awesome that I'm going to be really excited about. And sometimes he does. But wherever he calls you, it will always be somewhere where you have to trust him. Let me just make that really clear. If you're going to follow the call of Jesus, he will never, ever, ever call you into something that you can fully handle on your own. It wouldn't be loving of him. So no matter what the calling is, there will be an element of fear because there will be a call The call is not to do the things he's wanting you to do. The call is always to trust him. That's the call. And so Ananias objects a little bit and says, I'm, I'm scared. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The Lord says, go, and Ananias goes. That we would be, oh, that we would be that faithful. And so he finds Paul. 
This once great man who's been led by the hand, weak and trembling, blind and hungry, at the mercy of those he persecuted. Can you imagine what Ananias is feeling when he sees? So he sees Saul, who he has been afraid of, who he has thought of and pictured as this ruthless man who has gone through and terrorizing the Christian church, terrorizing believers everywhere, stories that have been passed down about who he is, about his zeal, about his relentlessness, about his ruthlessness. And what does Ananias find? Blind, weak, hungry, praying. I wonder what the conflict in Ananias was at that point. Do you think, do you think he had a, a, a temptation to just stand there and kind of stand over him and say, hey, you, you got what you deserved? Like, do you ever feel that when you see somebody kind of get what, get what they deserve and you kind of like inside you're like, all right, that's the way it should be. When we were flying uh, back, um, when we were in Denver, in the Denver airport, Denver airport, I don't know if you've ever been there or one night, it's a lot like O'Hare, it's just giant, and, um, and they, uh, in their great wisdom, on a very busy flying day, um, they had one of three security checkpoints open, which, you know, kudos, that's uh, really, a, really a challenging way to go about your day, but I felt that, you know, they felt like their employees were up to the challenge, I guess. And so the line not only filled up where it would normally fill up, but it went around the bend. And we, as we saw the line, we got to one security checkpoint and found out it was closed. We went to another security checkpoint, found out it was closed. They're like, oh yeah, no, 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 all of them are going through the west checkpoint. And we're like, oh, okay. And we go down there and we come down the escalator and we see the line and we're like, okay, well, that's full, but you know, that's not terrible. We'll be fine. And then we realize, no, that line doesn't end. Oh, that line's going. Oh, it's at the end of this hall. Holy cow. Oh, no, it's going around this hall. Oh, my goodness. It went the entire width of the airport. Like, I mean, it is the longest stretch of the airport. It goes all the way down. And as we're walking, we're just looking in disbelief, and we see the pity on the faces of the people who are in line. As what we didn't realize until later, what they were communicating to us is, you aren't even close. And we walk around and around and around until we finally find the end of the line. And we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we're looking at our watch, and we realize we're not going to get food now. We're not going to get, like, you know, now we're going to have to, we're just going to be, like, running onto the plane. Like, what, are we even going to get there? And when we finally get to the normal line, where they have, like, the, you know, the, the straps and everything that kind of, you know, funnel you through, when we finally get there, we're walking through there, and, and we're walking back, and it's one of those where, you like, you go this way, and then you go this way, so you always pass the same people, have you ever been in a line like that, like at Disneyland or whatever, and you're like, oh, hey. And then a couple minutes later, oh, hey. You know, it's just like those people. Well, as we're doing that, Lauren whispers to me, she said, that guy in the maroon shirt that we've been passing, he cut in line. <laughs> oh, no, he didn't. Nope. We've been standing here forever. I was like, where did he cut in line? Right over here. Like he, like not only like a little bit, like way at the front now where he got, he ducked under like one of the things, and got in there. I didn't notice it, but Lauren did. <laughs> Lauren always notices. So as we were going, she's like, oh, just, that just burns me. And I, and I look at him, and I'm like, you know, whatever. He's behind me. I don't care. Um, he, <laughs> you know. But, 
whatever. And so as we're going, I just, and what I told her, I was kind of, look, I was being half cheeky or whatever, but um, I was being half serious, half cheeky. And what I said to her was like, I was like, honey, you know, Jesus makes all things right in the end. Just like we just have our confidence in that. He makes all things right. Okay, great. We're going around. We get to the place where we show our ID. And I don't notice, like, we get through the ID, and we now get into the security lines, like one of the things. And I, um, I hear this, like, little commotion behind. I turn around, and that guy is directly behind me now. Because, you know, you split into all these different lines, security lines, and now he's right behind me, and a TSA agent is in his face. And she is chewing him out. She's like, did you cut in line? He's like, oh. I mean, it was like, I had so much empathy for him. I like, we immediately regressed back to eight years old where I was like, I don't know what I did. And <laughs> she's like screaming at him and being like, did you cut in line? He finally is like, yeah, I mean, I did that. And she just kept at him. And then she just lays into him in front of everybody. And it's all done. And he just, he's like, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry, ma'am. And she walks away. I thought, was she going to take him back to the end of the line? But she, she didn't. Lauren's thinking, take him back! <laughs> but I, I sat there, and I just, I turned around, and I looked at Lauren, and I was like, he really does make all things right. <laughs> Not used to it being that quick. But there's this certain, and I will tell you that at first I was like, good. And then I felt like this empathy and thought, oh man, like of all the things in my life and all the things in that day where I disobeyed God, where I hadn't loved my kids well, where I hadn't been gracious, and even my attitude towards this guy. And I just thought of God's mercy on me. Now what I should have done was turned around and started talking to him, but um, I didn't mainly because I thought my wife would get mad at me. But I just, I was like, head forward, like, let's just keep going. But I just couldn't help but being struck. And I wonder if Ananias is feeling something similar here. I wonder if at first what, what burrows in him is looking at Saul, who may have killed people he loves or arrested them or had them moved away. I mean, you're talking about an enemy. Not a, not a kind of enemy, an enemy. And maybe at first... He feels this sense of like self-righteousness and it's this thought of good. But whatever happens in the Holy Spirit in him, that doesn't last long. And what he says is unbelievable. Verse 17, look, it says, Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Remember when Jesus walking along, he's in a hurry. There's a woman that comes up and touches the hem of his robe. And she like escapes back in because she wants to be healed, but she runs away and he's having none of it. And he calls her out, who touched me? He draws her out from the crowd. She stands before him. And she says, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. And we see this in Ananias. And what he's saying in this moment, Brother Saul. Not candidate Saul, right? Not like intern Saul into the family of faith. Not engagement time like Brother Saul. Ananias recognizes Jesus saved you. So you are my brother. 
brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. No matter what you have done or where you have been, Jesus is the one that saves you. And it is not based on you, it is based on him. And so if he is saving you, my encouragement is to respond to him. Respond to him and turn and repent and receive life that you may see. But he doesn't just save Saul. He also sends him. So he, he saves you to send you. Verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon him this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Like, look at it. He immediately goes and starts proclaiming Jesus. Like in our church culture, not just here, but like in, especially in the Western church culture, we have this belief that, okay, once you're saved, then we have to stick you into a classroom where you learn and learn and learn. And then one day you might be ready to go share the gospel. And I would submit that that's why on average, about, it's one out of about 150 church members who will share the gospel in their lifetime. Think about that stat. I think that that comes from this idea that you have to somehow be fully ready to go and tell people what Jesus has done. But this is not what we see in Scripture. In John 9, we see the healing of the blind man where he immediately goes and starts professing. And, the, and he's put on, basically on trial, he's brought in for questioning and they're asking, the religious authorities are asking him, like, who is this man? Who is this man? Tell, like, we all know he's a sinner. Make sure, like, tell us who he is. And the blind man famously says, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. This is what I know. I was blind, but now I see. The testimony of the changed life is something you need to share immediately. To wait. You may not have all the answers. You will continue to grow and be strengthened in knowledge and understanding. And yes, that's when we take Bible study, that's when we study the Bible together and in community, like as we go. We aren't called to have all the answers. We're called to be faithful and continue to grow in our faithfulness and our understanding and our love. But when God sends us, here's the, here's the key point of this with, with Paul. When God sends us, he sends us as new creations, not blank slates. Here's what I mean by that. So God redeems us through Jesus. We are a walking testimony like the testimony of your changed life is the most powerful witness that you have. And then when we talk about redemption, it's not just that Jesus forgives us of our sin, which he does, but it means he buys back everything about you. It all belongs to him now. Your gifts, your personality, your story. So when Saul becomes a new creation, he is not a blank slate. He 
is still Saul, but he is redeemed. And so everything about him, his personality, his past, his abilities, all of those things still are there, but they have been redeemed and bought back by Jesus, and now they are used for his purposes. This is critical. He redeems your gifts and your skills and your abilities. Like whatever gifts or skills you have, he gave those to you. When he says that you are a new creation, that means he takes what you are and then redeems everything in you. He gave you that gift. That gift that you have to be able to connect with people quickly, that maybe at one point was used for evil to manipulate people, now can be used for good to connect with people and to pray for them and empathize with them. Maybe that, that sin in you that used to be anger and would come out as like others-focused and, and me-centered, and, and now it can be redeemed as like passion. All of those things, whatever those things are, whatever your gifts or your abilities or your personality, they, they're all, they belong to him. You identify with Christ. Look at, look at how immediately God demonstrates how he has been preparing Saul. You could look at it, Saul could look at it and say, like, my whole life has been a waste until this point. And God says, no, I've been preparing you. It says that he was proving that Jesus was the Christ. Well, how do you think he was doing that? Do you think maybe it had something to do with the years and years and years he had been studying the Hebrew scriptures? Do you think that all of a sudden, like it's not like he was just given this like, miraculous knowledge. God could have done that, but that's not what happened here. He's been redeemed. His education has been redeemed. His knowledge has been redeemed. His persuasiveness has been re redeemed. His zeal has been redeemed. It's this incredible thing. I mean, think about that. Like with his zeal, all, all the zeal he had in persecuting the church is redeemed and used for the church now. Only now it manifests itself not in hate, but in passion for the gospel and a deep love for others. Just think about how he is serving the church now and what he has done and who he has been. He says this later when he's writing to the Philippians, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, he's talking about himself, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. When he talks about these things, he's talking about like, look, if anybody can claim that they've earned God's grace or God's favor, it's me. But he'll talk about how like all that is lost. But the crazy thing is it's all been redeemed. He's still zealous. He's still righteous. He still pursues holiness. But now it is redeemed and it is in Christ. Brothers and sisters, whatever you have, and it is so easy to look at our pasts and look at our abilities or lack thereof, to look at our abilities and think, well, how could God use this? He can. He's been preparing you. Or to look at our personalities and think, oh, I just wish I was more like that person. No, no. He created you the way he created you to redeem you. And he does that even with your story. He makes you new, which is another way of saying he makes you who you were meant to be. 
He doesn't all of a sudden turn the introvert into this extrovert that just goes around just talking to everybody. He turns you into the introvert who sees a person and goes and connects with them and is able to pray for them deeply and minister to them. He redeems you, and he redeems, he redeems your story. Think about this. When Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. I don't know what your story is completely. I'm pretty sure it doesn't involve murdering a bunch of Christians. When Paul says this, he's not being flippant. He's not being falsely modest. He is remembering his conversion. And saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You know how I know? I murdered his followers. I persecuted him. And he saved me. He saved me that he might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Whatever story you have, it belongs to him when you come to Christ. It is his. Whatever you have, your story of addiction, story of divorce, story of abortion, story of hating the things of God, story of rebelling against all things that are good, whatever it is, story of brokenness and how you've been abused or you've been hurt. It's all his. When Jesus saves you, he redeems you and everything about you and he will redeem that story and he will use it for his sake. Think of all the times you have been impacted by someone's testimony of how Jesus has rescued them and redeemed them. Your story is his. Even Saul's. The one who persecuted Jesus now gives his life to preach his name. And finally, he isn't done with you. Not only does he save you to send you, but he is constantly sanctifying you. And sanctification is just the process of becoming more like Jesus. That's a simple term of that. So we're saved, we're redeemed. He sends us out to testify to his goodness. And then for the rest of our lives, we will be shaped and formed more and more into his image, becoming more like him. And it is in identifying with him that we become like him. Make, make sure you understand this. If you want to become like Jesus, if you want to be formed and shaped and become the person that you were created to be and have that abundant life, don't make the mistake of thinking that you are shaped by just knowing about him. You are shaped by abiding in him and identifying with him. It is in identifying with him that we become like him, and nowhere is that more clear than with his sufferings. I just want to go back to a strange thing that God says when he's talking to Ananias in verse 15. 
He says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, that could sound like, okay, good, he is getting a little bit of just desserts, right? Like he's getting a little bit of payback. Or he's going to have to earn his stripes at least. It sounds kind of like what God is saying is, okay, tell him he's going to get saved, but he's going to pay for it. But that's not what he's saying at all. The key to what he's saying is found even earlier in verse 4. When Jesus confronts him, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Which is like, who are you, sir? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Isn't that kind of a strange statement? Jesus doesn't say to him, why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you persecuting my disciples? That's who Saul is rounding up. But Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Why? Because we are the body of Christ. Our lives are hidden in Christ. We aren't merely foot soldiers just tossed out there kind of on our whim, on a whim. And Jesus is saying like, hey, look, I lived the life. I died and rose from the grave. Like I gave you all the power. Like go get him. We'll see you in, you know, about 80 years. He's saying, I am with you. It's a really incredible thing to think that when Stephen is persecuted, when Stephen is stoned to death and he sees the face of Jesus, that he realizes, Jesus is with me. Whatever you are dealing with, whatever you are walking with, you need to understand this very supernatural reality that Jesus is with you. Not in the same way that we would be with somebody, like if, if you go off and like, hey, just remember, we're with you. You go off to do something or go like, you know, you're going to have a hard day or whatever. Hey, just remember, we're all with you. Jesus is with you. In the Holy Spirit, he is with you. And so when someone persecutes you, they persecute Jesus. And when we persecute other brothers and sisters, we are persecuting Jesus. When we sin against a brother or sister in the church, we sin directly against Jesus. It's this incredible idea that as you did to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. It's not figurative. He is identifying with us and abiding in us as we abide in him. It is mysterious. It is difficult to explain. It is difficult to grasp, but it is wonderful. And this helps us understand why we must suffer. Saul's path to understanding is his shared identity with Christ through the sharing of his sufferings. He's the only apostle that did not walk with Jesus while he was alive. He's the only apostle who didn't watch and weep over Jesus at the cross. He's the only apostle that didn't walk with him and learn from him and see him raised from the dead. And so he comes face to face with him on the road to Damascus. 
And there is no shortcut to this. If you want to be used for the kingdom, if you want to be used for the glory of God, you must identify with him. And that will happen in sharing with his sufferings. But it is all worth it. When Paul is talking, when he talks about this later, and he's saying when he realizes, you know, who knows when Ananias told him this. Notice that he skipped over that part when he prays for Saul, right? Maybe he was thinking like, ah, too soon. Let's just like, let's just pray for your healing of blindness. I don't know. But later at some point, he's, it's, it's shared with him. You are going to suffer. And this is what Paul says when he talks about, look, if anybody could be called righteous, it's me. And he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Anything I was putting my hope in, I've lost it all for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. It isn't that we earn our stripes. It isn't some small way, like the suffering in our road is not some small way for us to pay back. And like we sometimes say, we're like, well, that's just my cross to bear. That's not what it's about. What it's about is that when our suffering, we are never more like Jesus. We are never more aware of his presence. We talk about this. I mention it many times, but call me on it. Tell me when you felt closest to Jesus. Tell me when you felt his presence more profoundly other than when you are walking through a trial. Tell me. We feel his presence. We identify with him. We realize that not only are we identifying with him, but he is identifying with us. And everything that is happening to us is happening to him because he is with you. think of anyone you admire in the faith. Who do you want to be like? They didn't get that way through their own strength, but they got that way through being humbled before the Lord and walking with him through suffering. And it is through this path that God redeemed the most brilliant theological mind that the world has ever seen. It's so fascinating that Paul, who writes all this incredible theology, like where we understand so much of what Jesus was doing, and he didn't, it wasn't because of anything else except for his identity with Christ and God redeeming everything about him. Look, whatever road God is taking you down, it is meant to sanctify you so that you would find life to form you more into the image of Jesus, to grow you in holiness, to help you better understand and experience God's love for you that will flow into a deep love for others. He brings you low so that he might lift you up. And that's what we see with Saul. In a minute, I'm gonna ask some people to come forward to to pray, but I do wanna mention one thing that we can't gloss over. The response of the church is pretty phenomenal. The evidence of the power of God is found in this church who welcomed the one who had murdered their loved ones. You know, everyone was afraid. 
they say later they don't trust him. They aren't sure about him. And Acts and, and verse 26 says, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. It's hard to blame. They're going through the same thing that Ananias went through. The same thing. But they do accept him eventually. And think about that. Just like Ananias, the entire church forgives him and welcomes him in. Maybe they're recalling what Stephen said as he fell and died. Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And they're probably thinking of Jesus who says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This isn't sentiment. This isn't just repeating what Jesus said. This was the heart of the church because it was the heart of Jesus because it was what had been done for them. So church, as we think about this and as we share the gospel and we see people come to Christ, one of the things that grieves me is when we speak ill of those inside the church is grievous because we are persecuting Jesus himself. But outside the church, you are defaming and slandering potential brothers and sisters, people for whom Christ has died. Let us be reminded that the early church welcomed Paul so quickly because that is how they were welcomed into the kingdom. They had all turned from Jesus. They all had passed. They had all been redeemed. They were lepers and tax collectors, Pharisees and Samaritans, abusers and prostitutes, divorcees and unclean, faithless and doubters, all of them. They understood the calling. They understood the cost. They understood who the true enemy was, and they understood who was their brother. And it was that radical compassion and grace that was a testimony to the world. One thing I don't think was lost on Saul is this simple thing. Ananias, that name, means God is gracious. This isn't a glossing over of sin. Saul's sin was great. God's grace was greater. Is it any wonder that years later, Paul would write these words? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is gracious. I want to ask any elders that are in here to come forward. I didn't, we're going to do something on the fly here, but I don't care. So, uh, Jeff, Doug, Brian, if you would come up. Martin, could you come up here? Um, Leslie, uh, Lori, do you want to come up here? Um, I don't know if Lauren's in here, but she can come up. Sarah, do you want to come up? I'm just looking out. Lisa, do you want to come up? Yes, Lisa, I said you. Um, just come up here. and I just want to take a moment. And John, where's John? Pat's. Can you just come up to your beautiful keyboard here? Tickle some ivories. So when we were back in the jazz clubs together, that's what we would say to each other. Oh. But seriously, I just want to have a moment where you can respond. And I don't know if anybody's going to or anybody's not, but we have men and women. Brian, you want to come over here? So we got a guy over here and just get a little mixture here.
Welcome to our worship planning meeting. But listen, church, God is gracious. All right, brother, sister, today may be the day for you. We want to pray for you. We want to give you the chance to respond. And so whatever your situation is, whether you've been turning, and then maybe this morning in this, in this time you felt confronted by Jesus, then come forward and pray. Or maybe you need to come forward and pray that God would use the hard road that you are on to sanctify you and to be used for his glory. And you need to surrender that because you've been holding on to this hard road and just being fixated on that and just wishing that God would take it away. And maybe today's the day that you say, you embrace that and say, okay, I know you're doing something in me. I need help. I need somebody to pray for me that God would take root, that everything that he's doing in me would take root. Or maybe you're in a situation where you're like, I have believed I am here, but I want to be sent. I'm not being used right now. I'm not going. You've been living your own life, but you want to fully surrender. Or maybe like Ananias, you've been told what to do, but you are scared. I want to pray for you. Or maybe you need to forgive someone. You've looked at someone like Ananias could have looked at Saul, and they have hurt you and they have wounded you and you have held on to that for so long but you need to let it go and give it to God who makes all things right whatever that is I'm going to pray we have the worship team come up here and, and, uh, and John's just going to keep playing a little bit just give some space for you can pray at your seat but just come forward these are people who love you and care for you these are godly men and women who will call out to Jesus on your behalf So as I pray, come forward, receive prayer, and then we will rejoice and sing together. Father God, Lord, I know that you are good and you're God and you're sovereign. You are working in our midst and not because of words that we would say or songs that we would sing, but because of you, for your namesake, for your glory. So Lord, I pray right now, if there are people in this room God, that you would move in them and they would take this time to come up and receive prayer. And we would call out, we would call out, God, to you, the God who saves us, the God who redeems us, the God who sanctifies us, and the God who sends us out for the glory of your name and for the hope of all nations. pray, Lord, that that you're moving in people's lives, that we would come forward now and receive prayer. God is moving. It's not because of strategies or styles or human strength, but it's because for whatever reason, God has said, I'm pursuing my people. And the Holy Spirit is with us. He's pursuing you, saving you, sanctifying you, and sending you that we would go together so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. Let it be so.
Amen. I love you, church. Have a great week.